Cloud computing would not be possible if not for virtual machines. They are the fundamental resource for cloud-native applications. Then along came Docker with its containers, and the virtualization scene got a bit more complicated and confusing. So we kicked off a new series where we go deep on virtual machines and containers, aiming to clear up any confusion between these important technologies. In episode 81 of MobyCast, we discussed full virtualization, also known as virtual machines. We explained hypervisors, the fundamental technology that enables virtual machines. And then we took a detailed look at how type 1 hypervisors work. In today's episode of MobyCast, John and Chris bring these concepts to life by examining several popular hypervisor implementations. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Before we get started today, I'm so happy and so proud to be able to announce that we have a sponsor, so MobyCast is no longer ad-free. But our sponsor is one that we really do care about. We use CircleCI, and we've talked about CircleCI in a previous episode. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, so I just have this to say. This episode is brought to you by CircleCI, the continuous integration and delivery service used by companies like Twilio, Intuit, and Tinder. CI-CD is so important for keeping teams building. It's all CircleCI does. They focus on creating powerful, flexible CI-CD pipelines so that you and your team can focus on doing what you do best. Whether you're a company of five or 500, CircleCI can build, test, and deploy your Linux, Windows, and Mac OS projects from GitHub and Bitbucket in their cloud or installed on your servers. And anyone can sign up and start building for free since CircleCI gives both private and public projects a thousand free build minutes per month. Sign up and start building for free at CircleCI.com. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Hey, good to have you back. So, uh, yeah, we're here without Rich. Um, we've, started, we've started a new sort of progression with a new producer, and it's just going to be you and I from now on. Um, but I think we still like to talk about what we're up to and just give our listeners a little bit more than talking robots uh, that know about software. So what have you been up to, Chris? So we, 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 you know, you know me, I'm, I'm a cycling nut. Um, this year, my goal has been to have 4,000 miles. That is not short. On my, uh, on my bike? No, it's not. It, it's, it's a tough one. Um, I had a uh, kind of delay to my season um, where I didn't get too much in January through, through April. So I'm kind of playing catch up. Um, I have passed 3,000 miles. You know, I'm, I'm glad about that. But the thing that I've noticed recently is that um, because of the weather here and we're now into September, the weather has not been as conducive. So I'm, I'm taking a bit more rest days. And what I've noticed is that rest days are actually very conducive to KOMs. Oh, yeah, um, they are. So, yeah. Um, so lately it's been kind of fun um, doing these rides and, and getting a KOM um, almost every time. And, uh, you know, some of them are pretty meaningless, but some of them are like, you know, first out of like, 1500 people and those are, Ooh, those, are those, those are good ones yeah so yeah so i'm i'm enjoying my crowns <laughs> excellent yeah congrats on that that's really cool thanks um yeah and over here i've also been you know you're listening to this in october i think uh but here it is we're recording it in september 
And I'm just getting ready ready to go on a trip to that I do every year, either in September or October, to go visit some friends in Baja, California, do some surfing. This year on the trip, there'll be another software person, Matt Mori. Um, hope he's listening right now. Um, he is the VP of technology for a company called Valtech. And uh, yeah, excellent person. And I, I mean, he, he really got his, you know, he... He started doing software uh, really deeply into mobile stuff. Um, he wrote a book about doing core data in iOS that was excellent. And that's what I, that's how I got to know him was when he presented that book at a meeting in San Diego. And turns out we both surf. So we've been friends ever since. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm leaving later this afternoon to go catch my plane. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it'll be great. So let's go back to visiting our episode, revisiting our episode one on virtual machines versus containers. Uh, last week we talked a lot about virtual machines and we got, we started getting into hypervisors and it started getting pretty deep. Um, and, and I had so many questions about hypervisors that I couldn't ask because we didn't have enough time to get into it. But this week we can, I, I don't even need to ask those questions because we're all prepared to talk a bunch about hypervisor implementations this week. So Chris, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so um, you know, just again as a as a quick refresher, uh last episode was all about full virtualization aka virtual machines and really how hypervisors enable virtual machines. And there's two types of hypervisors, type 1, type 2. Um type 2 run in user space, type 1 is um running directly against the the hardware um and think of them as their own um an operating system in and of itself, right? Um, so, uh, type one hypervisors are really what allows for performance and scale. It's what's being it's what's being used in any kind of data center and, and definitely in the cloud. And so that's something that we'll be we'll be focusing on. So we we talked we talked about just how type one hypervisors work in general and kind of like the theory behind a bit. And so today, hopefully, we'll kind of. Um, bring those concepts to life by actually looking at several different hypervisor implementations and how they work um, to Excellent. kind of maybe maybe just bring all that stuff together. Cool. Right. So um, two, two hypervisor implementa- implementations to talk about today. Um, one is Hyper-V, which is a, a type one hypervisor from Microsoft. And then we'll also talk a bit about KVM. Um, which is a type one hypervisor for primarily for Linux, although it's been ported to other operating systems as well. But those are two very, very popular um, hypervisors um, out there right now that will being used in the cloud, and uh, we'll uh, we'll dive into those. So why don't we start with hypervisor, um, the Microsoft's hypervisor, Hyper V. And we we mentioned Hyper V last week, and I remember we even got off the rails a little bit because I was like, oh wait, you know. Is a, can can your everyday user operating system just be a virtual machine and Hyper-V just get scripted to start that? And we decided, no, that's, that wouldn't make any sense because why would you want to add that extra processing and extra wait time when you're just when it's just you and your machine? So yeah, let's let's find out how Hyper-V actually works. And obviously, it's for data centers and not for your own personal machines. Right. Yeah. So so yeah. So. Hypervisor, um, hyper, hyper V. <laughs> you want to call it hypervisor uh, know, yeah. V? It's hypervisor I mean, V. No, it's hyper V. <laughs> I mean, thing like engineers, we're so like, it's kind of like the same problem with like in astronomy, right? It's like, how do you name things? It's such a hard problem, and so like you mm-hmm. you name astrological, astronomical objects like with you know serial numbers essentially, and then here we are in the in the software world, and we say things like 
we, we call like we have a hypervisor, um, which is basically the supervisor of the supervisor. So hypervisor, um, we have a hypervisor project product called Hyper V, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we have there's two type there's two types of hypervisors, and what do we call them? Type one, <laughs> type two, right? <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> it's purely a mnemonic device. It's always easy to remember what one and two means and what the difference is. It's built into the net. <laughs> Nothing but alphabet soup. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so Hyper V, Microsoft's uh, Type One hypervisor, and this is it's part of Windows Server itself. Um, you install it. Um, you can install it after the fact, right? After um, a, you know. Windows Server install. You can install this as a role. You, there's various other ways of installing it, but it's 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 something that's it's kind of there, but you have to you 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 have to enable it. There's also separate standalone um, installs as well for kind of like I think more bare metal type um, mm-hmm. type circumstances and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> but so uh, you know with 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 Hyper V, it has this concept of Partitions, and so the virtual machines are isolated inside these partitions, and these partitions are essentially their logical units of isolation. And what's kind of interesting with Hyper V is that there's this there's there's parent partitions and child partitions. Okay, and the parent partition is pretty. Pretty important, um, just by virtue of its of its name, right? So that's where sure. the, that's where the actual virtualization software is going to run. So the hype, hype basically the Hyper V functionality itself is going to be running in that parent partition, and it's the one that has the direct access to the hardware. So yeah, let me let me actually stop you for a second because whenever I hear about something being partitioned, um, it's that thing. Like, what is being partitioned? The memory, the what the the amount of times that you the amount of time you get access to running instructions on the CPU like what's being partitioned so in in this particular case you can think of it as this is the you can you can kind of think of it as a VM in and of itself and so it's 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 partitioning the computer what 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 a VM partitions right so okay. um but it's this is also like the controller for all the guest OSs that will that may run on this machine as well, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it, I think it is fair to say it's kind of partitioning the computer and and all that that encompasses. Like I've got a computer. A computer means so many things. It means running instructions. It means memory. It means network. It means you know sending stuff to a screen. It means I/O. It means everything. And I think that that's maybe why they're using that word partition. I'm partitioning up this this hardware. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, the other way of thinking of it is that uh, you can think of each virtual virtual machine runs in a partition. Um, mm-hmm. So of the of like you see why I'm so insistent on this. Like partition doesn't mean anything without the thing it partitions. Right. Uh, that's kind of a critical part of the definition of the word. Right. So that's why I can't let go of it. Um, and and for lack of a better thing, it, it, it's like the heart, the computer, like you're partitioning sure. your computer. Yeah, so the, I mean, partitions are, are, basically it's the user mode software. It's where guest OS is run and it 
turns out like this is where the kind of the management, the virtualization software that Hyper-V needs in order to deal with these these guest OSs, that it's where that lives. So there, okay. there still is the the hypervisor itself. It's running in a privilege ring, um, and you still have you know the, the operating system kernel. But there's these partitions, and there's one special partition. It's the parent partition, and that is where the virtual machine management service lives. Um, that's where. Is 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 kind of like the more the management task that the hypervisor uh, would would need to do, right? For for a system like this, okay. and, th- and this is a this is this is not a unique architecture. Um, mm-hmm. Zen the Zen hypervisor is, um, system kind of has a similar concept. Instead of partitions, they call them domains, um, and uh, there's a special domain domain zero. That essentially is their concept of a parent partition, and then they have mm. user domains, and those are the guest OSs they run in those domains. And so, likewise, Hyper-V has, you know, they've they've called them partitions. Okay, right. So, so again, so so the the parent partition, um, you know, this is where the virtualization software runs, and it also has direct access to the hardware. Um, there needs to be at least one parent partition and it's going to it needs to be running a supported version of windows server right which kind of makes sense like the the code is written for windows server so inside that partition mm-hmm. it should be running windows server and so the parent partition is responsible for creating child partitions which then host the guest oss right so when you're spinning up your vms it's the parent partition that's responsible for creating those child partitions. Okay, and that's done via Hyper-V's uh, Hypercall API. Okay, right. The parent partitions also run something called the the VSP, which is the Virtualization Service Provider, and that connects to another component, which is the VM bus. Um, and the VM bus is basically it's the logical channel. Which enables interpartition communication, right? So you, you can think of it, this is just the communication channel, this VM bus, and so when child partitions have device access request, it's going through the VM bus to the VSP, and then accessing the hardware, right? And Tell me again what like, the VSP is. That's the virtualization service provider. Okay. Right. I, so it, it's it's. I get the like the bus was actually easy. I was like, okay, I understand this bus. That's where all these you know where I'm going to talk to the hardware. I'm going to put the me- the messages are going to go in the bus. But the VSP, I was like, what is that? So the VSP, so virtualization service provider. So basically, I think that is the part of this the hypervisor functionality that is is providing that the vir- the virtualized hardware serv- okay. as services right okay. so i'm a child partition i instead of talking to a, the hardware i'm talking to my vsp the vsp is then responsible for putting stuff on the vm bus and the vm bus is what kind of shuttles shuffles information back and forth between my actual hardware and my vsp yeah maybe it's slight nuance the the vm bus is for inner partition communication uh um, right, and so it's the parent partition, I believe. That's but talking. why do partitions need to talk to each other? So I've got two child partitions; they shouldn't need to ever talk to each other. They they need to talk to the parent partition, right? So this is the okay. architecture of, of of Hyper-V, right? So that's okay. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think 
like there's I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that they're going to they're going to be talking yeah. to each other, right? They shouldn't even know that um, those other um, guest OSs are running on that machine, right? Um, if they are talking to each other, they're talking to each other through established yeah. Yeah. ways of computers talking to one another, like mm-hmm. networking. Mm-hmm. But they are talking cool. to the parent, right? So okay, um, okay, and so that's and the thing they're doing to talk to the parent is basically saying, I, "I'm just trying to understand that too." Like the parent is. Is kind of a virtual machine. It's a part. It's a partition. Yeah. But you're saying it's running Windows Server, mm-hmm. um, and the the child partitions are like, "Hey, parent, um, shutting down," or "Hey, parent, I'm." What else do they need to tell the parent? What kinds of things do the children need to tell the parent? Do you know? Um, well, it's it's like device access requests, right? So whenever they need to access hardware, right, that's a request that goes onto the the bus. Okay, and the parent handles that. Mm-hmm. So the parent the parent yeah. handles that through the VSP, and then huh. that then goes into through the VSP to access the hardware, and then and then the whole thing is remapped right back onto the to the bus. So, but that is a little surprising to me because that sounds like maybe para virtualization, which we discussed last week, and not full on hardware virtualization. Because if I've got to talk to an operating system to talk to my hardware instead of just kind of being handed access to the operating system it doesn't feel like full virtual i'm sorry hardware virtualization so there there's a whole bunch of like mix and match here and kind of blending of of boundaries uh-huh. um so by virtue of having like a hypercall api um you know that definitely is um borrowing a bit on para virtualization and how that works uh-huh but it also Uses hardware virtualization specific, you know, again the 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 chip specific functionality. So like whether it be for dealing with um, memory pages and page table virtualization or um, actual CPU instructions that help out with this. So that's being taken advantage of as well with it. So I, I guess you know without going into like the 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 really deep details of of how Hyper V is. Actually, architected and written because we'll just get lost in the the weeds, and we'll actually run up against the like. Okay, we need to go talk to someone actually that wrote the code. Right, right, right. But so, so this is more of a logical architecture of just kind of like keeping it at the point that like this is it is very performant. It is leveraging hardware virtualization um, again through CPU instructions as well as things like for with with page table virtualization support that like the the Intel and the AMD chips provide it's using this bus to kind of deal with those kinds of calls and the emulation is kept to a minimum right it's it's uh-huh. leverage, it's leveraging direct hardware access where where possible it doesn't require any guest OS modifications Right, right, which is which is kind of like para virtualization. That's one of the the big requirements. There is that the guest the guest OS has to be aware of it. Yeah, I think that one of the things that would help me understand, and and I don't think we're ready to answer this, but I think one of the things that would help me understand this is like that VSP communication and that bus that that happens. Like, I want to know whether that kind of like there's a bunch of sort of machine startup communication that happens, like. Hey, I'm a virtual machine. I need some memory. I need some network. I need some, you know, other things. Um, VSP, get them for me. And then the VSP is like, all right, bus, bus, bus. You know, over to over to the parent operating system. The parent operating system is like, here you go. Here's all the things you asked for. Now talk to them directly. Or whether it's always like, 
hey, I need this memory address, you know, VSP, bus, and parent operating systems, like, here, you know, here's what's at this memory address. Like, that seems to me to be going through a lot of layers versus, like, what, you know, if, it, if, the, if this whole architecture could just be, like, a way of kind of getting the child partition set up and talking to its hardware directly and kind of be like, all right, let me know if you need a change. After from here on, you're talking. I'm going to make sure you only talk to the part you're allowed to talk to. But beyond that, like you are pretty much talking to the metal. I would like to understand that. Like that, I think that would help me get my head around around this. Like whether mm-hmm. it's a kind of a handshake or whether it's a constant chatty communication through this VSP and bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe some, I mean just a few additional points here on the child partitions. So you know they don't have the direct access to the hardware. Um, it's, they have a virtual view of the processor, huh. and they run in a guest virtual address space. Okay, which is obviously not not necessarily the entire virtual address space. The hypervisor is handling the interrupts to the processor, and it's redirecting those to whatever partition should be receiving it. Right, hmm. um, and then any request to virtual devices, those are redirected to the VM bus. Um, to the devices in the parent partition, hmm. right? So, so it sounds like it is more likely to be kind of the latter. Like it's not setting you up and being like, "All right, you're you're kind of like level zero access to the hardware from here on." It's more like you talk to me when you need something. You talk to this VSP, and on the parent, if you for anything, you have to go through me. For devices, for sure, it's going along the VM bus, um, mm-hmm. and then. For so again, I mean that's one of the one of the roles of the parent partition is to create the child partitions, and so when they when it basically by doing that, right, it, it is setting up things like okay, what mem- what's your memory space, what's your CPU, you know, all that stuff that it, that involves with instantiating a new VM for for a guest OS, uh-huh. and then after that, it's like okay, how do you deal with devices? How do you deal with the processor? Um, and so it's a it's a blend here, mm-hmm. right? Of of all that kind of finding the right balance between performance and and not needing guest OS modifications. Where can we leverage hardware virtualization and actual support on the chip versus what stuff's going to be going to be done in software? Mm, cool. And so the the good thing here is that like a, not a lot is being emulated. Mm-hmm. It really is running on 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 the hardware. Um, and there is some messaging going back and forth, um, but again, that's that's pretty much optimized. Cool. Yeah, let's let's continue. I, I sort of have this other like bigger question, but I want to see if it gets answered um, by by continuing on and talking about another hypervisor. Sure. So yeah, so let's let's talk about KVM. Um, so KVM stands for Kernel Based Virtual Machine. And um, so, with the, this is a virtualization module in in the actual Linux kernel. So, what it does is it turns the Linux kernel itself into a hypervisor. So, this is a little bit of again a, a blend, right? We talked about in the previous episode type one, type two hypervisors, where type type one hypervisors really, mm-hmm. for the most part, you think of them as an operating system in and of itself. The only reason why they exist is to be installed onto you know bare bare metal, and then they exist to instant to, to do 
to just run virtual machines, right? So to create them, to to manage them, to delete them and whatnot. But this is so huge for me. I think you already just answered my bigger question. So let me just try to explain what's going on in my head. I was trying to figure out about when it comes to partitioning a processor and like splitting it up, a big part of splitting it up is basically giving different processes access to run their instructions. Because that's the job of a processor, right? Like, here's a, you know, if you go all the way back to like early computers, they're very simple. It's like, here's a place of memory, it's got some instructions, run through those things and do them as fast as you can. And like, go get it, the next instruction, next instruction, next instruction. And each instruction may require you to put a little bit of information into a register or retrieve information from a register or like go all the way out to memory and get some information from there and, and do something with it. Um, and then, like the point of the, the point of an operating system, like one of the major points of an operating system is to say, "Hey, we're not just going to run programs one at a time anymore. We're going to have many processes running at once, and so we're going to make this thing that's smart about that, and it's able to just sort of say, "Now you, now you, now you," and like pick which process runs um, and gets access to the operating system. And the processes have priorities, and they, and, you know, they ha- maybe have blocks of things where it's like you cannot interrupt this process during this block. Um, and all that kind of stuff like that. Also, it just sort of makes core sense, and it's been something that I've known for many years. And I could be there could be nuances that I don't understand, but at least it like you know makes a logical sense in my mind. Um, so I was like, well, if we have virtual machines um, and they each think of themselves as you know a whole computer, then they're not going to be that good at playing nice when it comes to a processor. Like they're not going to be that good at being like. Oh, I'll only do a few executions, and then I'm going to give someone else a turn. They're going to want to just do what they do, which is run, pro, you know, run instructions. Um, so I was like, how do you? How does a hypervisor manage that? How does it deal with um, lots of virtual machines running on the same hardware? And I was like thinking about how does this? How, how does this have anything to do with the number of cores on the machine? Uh, how does it have anything to do with you know? And like, how does the the processor level virtualization work like what is it offering up is it offering up little partitions of execution time like oh you get five instructions or you get 500 instructions or you know i don't know the answer the number but like you know you see what i mean like how is it partitioning up it's essentially instruction execution time and what you just told me i'm sorry this is so long winded but what you just told me it answers that question. You said that the virtualization module is essentially itself a little Linux kernel, which is like, aha, guess what Linux kernels are really good at? They're really good at giving processes a little time to run on a, on a, on a CPU. Like That's literally the most important thing that a Linux kernel does. So now it's like, oh, yeah, each virtual machine can, can sort of become... A process for this Linux kernel to manage and give it, you know, give each one some time to to get some instructions executed. And that may be wrong, but it feels intuitively right to me. Yeah, and I think again, I mean, th- these are pretty deep technical concepts, and it can be kind of hard to mm-hmm. wrap your wrap your brain around it. Um, so, you know, we talked about with Hyper V, like the hypervisor handles the interrupts to the processor, right, and is redirecting it to the respective partition, right. So that's that's kind of gives you hints on like how. Right, but when you say that technically, it's like I'm not sure what you said. But now that I just had my little aha moment, I'm like, oh yeah, yes, that makes sense. Right. 
Yeah, just keep in mind that so we're talking about KVM now. Um, this is just one one way of doing it, right? So the, this is the way that KVM came to life was they a bunch of engineers sitting around going, "Oh, we already have this thing that can manage processes. Let's see if we can use it to manage virtual machine." Right. So they they said we can we can write this new kernel module that basically implements hypervisor functionality, and that's how we're going to mm-hmm. do virtualization on Linux. Right, which which is before the KVM, there was Zen, and Zen does it different. Zen does it more along the lines of what of what Hyper V and the architecture that Hyper V has, right? Um, but kind of again, same. They're both Type One hypervisors. Um, slight the different ways that they went about implementing it. Um, at the end of the day, though, the the same core things are happening, right? So we talked about how hypervisor. So kernel is also known as a supervisor, mm-hmm. right? And we said that a hypervisor came about because it's really the supervisor of the supervisors, mm-hmm. right? So so it's 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 kind of so what you're talking about, like oh, the kernel is responsible for um, you know allocating CPU resources mm-hmm. and who gets to run when and dealing with interrupts and the devices and all that kind of stuff, right? So the same thing. Hypervisors involved with that as well. It's just across mm-hmm. multiples of these things, and so just where is that? Where is that implemented? It's just going to depend on the you know whatever implementation you're talking about and how it's done. But mm-hmm. the principles are there. yeah, yeah. I, I'm so many more things are coming to my mind now. Like you know, like in this implementation, you would want to know like is this machine actually busy or is it not? Which means you would need to know some about what it's doing. Like. Because maybe it's hard to tell it from a, a black box point of view whether a virtual machine is just you know kind of like in idle mode or whether it's like chunking away on some hard problem and needs lots of access to the CPU. Right. Yeah, and that's going to go with just what the the scheduling constraints are and, and just how you want how you want that that to work. So I, I mean I, I'm not familiar enough with like all the various hypervisors and and how they do scheduling and. Um, Whatnot. Obviously, interrupts are pretty pretty straightforward, and that that becomes a, 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 mm-hmm. a pretty natural boundary from when something switches from from one to another, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, this is a, a really deep deep for sure topic um, for sure. We we could spend fifty episodes, right? Right. And the point of MobyCast is not to not to write not to teach people how to write hypervisors, but to like make people better software developers and make people sort of aware of the things that are useful to to you know being a good backend developer mostly. Yeah, so we want to get just to that level where it's like, oh, now I know this additional thing that I can kind of have in the back of my mind as I'm writing code and knowing that it's going to run on a virtual machine or in a container, which we're about to get to in a couple episodes. Cool. Yeah, so maybe moving on with so KVM so again, it's so 2000 this has been in Mainix uh, mainline Linux since 2007. Um, again, delivered as a a, a kernel, um, a virtualization module in the Linux kernel. Um, it's le- it takes advantage of hardware virtualization. Um, so using the CPU virtualization virtualization extensions like Intel VT or AMD V, but it also does support paravirtualization um, using um, there's a vert IO. For, short for virtual I/O API, so for for um, for that hypercall API um, for for doing for guest OSs that have been modified that don't where you don't have the, mm-hmm. the hardware virtualization support. It's uh it's 
basic architecture is again, you know, there, there's 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 actually a couple two main pieces. There's the kernel component, and then there's also a user space component. So the kernel component, there are it's it's a there's a loadable kernel module called KVMKO that provides the core virtualization um, infrastructure. And then there's processors, processor-specific modules um, for both Intel and AMD architectures that um, then leverage that core kernel module. And then for the user space component, um, it uses QEMU, which is short for is short for Quick Emulator. And what this is this is a, a user land program that does hardware emulation, and it's used by KVM. Not for all the hardware emulation, but for the I/O emulations. Um, so what did you just say? It, user land. User land. Mm-hmm. So th- this, I mean, this is a. Uh, you'll hear about this in various different platforms. Like in in Node, they talk about user land, and that basically ends up being like the npm ecosystem, right? Of like users out there just writing modules that you can go and install. Uh, okay. It's not part of the core, right? It's not part of Node core. Got it. And so the same thing with Linux, right? So Linux is you know, you have the Linux core with its kernel, um, but then stuff that's running in user mode and you know, basically applications, right? That's that's user land. And so QEMU is a user land program that does this hardware emulation. So that it's something that K, KVM leverages part of that for, again for the IO emulation, not for it will do complete hardware emulation. QEMU stands alone by itself and it's used by other hypervisors. But it's it's one of those things that when you look at KVM, you'll always see references to QEMU because it it is using that for part of this. Okay, and so one of the takeaways I got from what you just said was a bunch of information. But you basically were you essentially said KVM is built up from modules, and there's sort of a core module, and then modules that are on top of that, and each of those modules have the ability to mix and match and give you different types of virtualization from. Para-virtualization to complete emulation, full virtualization, and hardware virtualization. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, another core takeaway to that is that it's it's Linux. Linux is definitely one of the the most popular operating systems out there, especially in the in the cloud space. Um, and this is something that is highly performant. Um, it's relatively newish. In that you know it hit the main line in 2007 versus things like Zen um, that grew out of um, I believe a, 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 a rec- an academic project in the late 90s um, oh, yeah. type time time frame right so this is kind of a a, a, a later stage hypervisor mm-hmm. it's core it's built into Linux um, it's got a, a lot of Great support for um, just from a performance standpoint, um, with you know doing the the having taken advantage of hardware virtualization. It's got the kernel um, support. Um, it's leveraging other other pieces for for other operations that are that are less critical. Like again, like QEMU for the I/O emulations. And one of the reasons why we're talking about Hyper-V and KVM is because these are two of the most popular, most important hypervisors. In the clouds, in the public cloud space, right? So obviously, Microsoft Azure, um, Hyper-V is definitely going to be one of the, the the core hypervisor using there. And then for AWS, um, they they started off using Zen as the primary hypervisor for EC2 instances, 
and um, recently have been switching over to KVM um, as kind of like mm. the next generation, right? So um, that's what I thought it'd be good to talk about both both uh, Hyper-V and KVM because they, they really are, these are these are some of the ones that you're going to hear about when you're talking about cloud-native computing and virtual machines and what hypervisors are being used. Mm-hmm. Does, I mean, in your experience, does that ever really come up? Like, do you see it anywhere, say, in the... AWS console or, um, you know, because that is the kind of thing that when you see something like this in the AWS console or in, or even in like an AWS certification exam, it's like, God, I don't know. I don't ever install type one hypervisors. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, for the most part, no, right? And that, that's why like we, we can all use the cloud and we don't have mm-hmm. to know exactly, like we don't even know what, we don't really have to understand what the difference is between a virtual machine and a container, right? And we can still sure, kind of use sure, it. Yeah. But, but it, uh, it, is, it is helpful. There are um, circumstances, like, you know, when spinning up EC2s, um, there are options like, you know, do you want PV or do you want HVM, right? And so what that's saying is like basically, do you want, are you going to be using para-virtualization or are you going to be using hardware virtualization? And so there we go. Yeah, those options have appeared in in, in the console and kind of understand what it is. Um, Zen is something you you will hear a lot. You'll see it in documentation. You'll hear people talking about it, um, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, what does that you know? They said that word, but well, you know, what does it mean? Well, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully this gives context to that. Like, okay, Zen was you know, it's one of the core. Hypervisors out there, it's it's the way that 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 VMs get installed, and so like we talk about things like EC2 instances. To us, when we use them, they feel like it's a machine, right? It's a server, but it's not. It's a VM, um, and so kind of understanding like, well, how does how did those things exist? Like, what does it mean to spin up a VM? What what's actually happening and what technology is being used? Right. And so to talk to talk about Zen and then KVM and KVM it, it, again, it's you're going to hear more and more about this going forward, especially in AWS land. They, the, and maybe that's what we can kind of talk about next is yeah. just the AWS landscape and kind of what they've done there. And so, kind of now take this concept of virtual machines. Um, we said how important it is um, to the cloud and how it really has enabled the cloud to exist. Well, the cloud obviously is growing tremendously, right? Like, you know when AWS first launched back in what was it 2006 or whatever. Um, you know how many how many virtual machines do they have? How many EC2 instances do they have? You know I don't know what the number is, but it's whatever the number is then versus now. Definitely orders of magnitude. Many many orders of magnitude <laughs> difference, right? <laughs> and so. You know, obviously they're going to be built. They've built more data centers, and they have more racks, and they have more physical servers that they've bought. But they've also they need to get more and more performance out of each one of those, and they need to be able to run more and more virtual machines on uh, on a piece of hardware, right? In order to accommodate that kind of growth. So it's kind of interesting to look to take a you know a quick look at just what AWS has done there. And so you know we the original. EC2 technology, like we said, it ran on a highly customized version of Zen. So Zen was the hypervisor they used for spinning up these virtual machines, mm-hmm. um, and they did have both both para virtualization 
and hardware virtualization capabilities there. Mm-hmm. They had some, you know, special requirements, you know, run, running in the public cloud and having to deal with things like uh, multi-tenant computing, right? So mm-hmm. they, um, you know, how do you just security constraints, right? Dealing with security yeah. and noisy right, neighbors, right. those yeah. two things, like yeah. yeah. So, so they had they had a you know some of the the changes they made there is they they had to make sure that memory allocated to the guest OSs was scrubbed by the hypervisor when mm. that when that when that <laughs> guest OS was deallocated, right? So boot up, um, read my memory. What was in there? What was in here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then, I mean, so obviously the hypervisor, like that gives you, that's the point that you have access to everything, right? So pretty, pretty core, pretty, um, needs to be pretty secure. So they needed to make sure that the only people that had access to the hypervisors were actual AWS admins, and right? Like, mm-hmm. and so a very, very few select subset of, of actually just their job of, you know, Maintaining and, and patching and, and uh, updating hypervisors um, and whatnot. So during this process, as AWS is growing, they're finding you know Zen had many limitations on um, just being able to keep up with the performance that they need out of it, um, and so had to decide you know okay how are we gonna gonna do this? And so you know one of the things to keep in mind is that so the hypervisor it's it does a lot of things. So a traditional hypervisor, it's it's protecting the physical hardware and the BIOS. It's virtualizing the CPU. It's virtualizing storage and networking. It's also doing management tasks. There's a lot of service area that a traditional hypervisor is doing. And they looked at it and said, well, why don't we start splitting some of that stuff off um, and optimizing those those subsections, if you will, of the hypervisor to get better performance. Mm-hmm. So they. You know, one of the um, starting in 2013 with the C3 instance family, they came out with their own custom chips um, for this to Mm -hmm. have a custom network interface for faster bandwidth and throughput on those 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 VMs. So start Mm -hmm. start breaking that apart. They're still running the traditional Zen hypervisor on top of uh, Intel Xeons, mm-hmm. but they started that process of breaking it up. Um, the next instance family, the C4, they um, then continued to do that offloading. So n- network virtualization went to custom hardware with ASICs optimized for storage. And this also goes back to something we talked about last week. I, I was like, oh, how do you get a hypervisor on the machine? Is that like a you know, do you stick a thumb drive in and boot from it, or do you put a disk in it that's already got it on there? And what you're telling me now is that for these couple of modules for um, for the network interface and for network virtualization, it's literally in the chip. It's already on there. Yep. That hypervisor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or that part of the hypervisor. Yep. Yeah. So just you know, saying like, hey, these things we need more performance out of them, so we're going to have custom hardware to to deal with it and to make it faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so that was the the C four family in um, 2015, and then in uh, 2017 with now the the C five family. Um, this is where they um, basically this is where they introduced Project Nitro. And so you may you may have heard about Project Nitro. Um, pretty important from a technology standpoint for AWS. And so what it is is this is this is like the completely um, rebuilt 
hypervisor where they breaking apart all the functions that the traditional hypervisor is doing and they're offloading it to either dedicated hardware or dedicated software. Um, this is also where they replace Zen with KVM. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so Project Nitro is now using a highly optimized KVM version that's tightly coupled with an ASIC. Um, and so now they're seeing you know incredibly fast performance for VMs approaching Performance that you would get on on bare metal. Mm-hmm. So it so it seems like black magic, and like you'd have to be you know just the absolute, just you know super genius to be able to do that. But as I sit here and think about it, it's like this. It's maybe not so hard. Like there probably exist programs that if you if you can get your you know Linux library sort of organized correctly, and you know. Put together just right, you can. There probably exist programs that can take modules or pieces of your of your program and say and like like basically turn it into three D print for a chip, right? Like you don't have to you don't have to like build the program in the chip. You just you just take this KVM. It was already open source. You break it apart. You reorganize it just so that it'll fit into this you know program that you're writing. And then the output of it is like an instruction set that tells some big machine that makes ASICs how to make your ASIC. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is all, it's all built. And, and this, this is something we talk a lot, a lot about is like all this super hardcore, hardcore stuff that's, that seems absolutely impossible is, is totally possible because it's all like layers and layers and layers of tech that have been built up to make it doable and easy. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing that I've just come to appreciate, because like when you think of these things in and of themselves, it seems like oh my, like it is it's black magic. It's incredibly difficult. Like how would you ever do that? Mm-hmm. Um, like I mean, something as as silly as like a a dishwasher, right? And having like timer functions on it and different you know settings and and maybe it's connected to you know other appliances or whatnot. Um, but that wasn't developed in a vacuum, right? That represent that's an iteration. Over the previous generation, which is an iteration over that. So everything you're always building on top of something, and you're always, mm-hmm. you know, just building on top of the the previous layer. Um, mm-hmm. And so the same thing goes with with software. It definitely goes with hardware. You know, all that said, these software, these cloud companies like like um, Microsoft and Google and and Amazon. They're not just software. They're they're hardware companies as well. So I mean, Amazon. They specifically they went out. They acquired chip companies, and you know, it's I believe it's been several. So they actually have chip designers um, now as just part of the the Amazon team. Mm-hmm. And um, I guarantee you, the number of people working on Project Nitro, it wasn't a two pizza team only, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this was this was hundreds and hundreds of people. Working it across all different disciplines, and some of the just the, the the you know most fundamental experts in these particular areas um, working on it. So it it is hard, um, but you know it it's obviously it's 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 doable, right? And it's, I, I, we're beating it to death, but I also want to add that um, it's not one person that understands like how to optimize the hypervisor and also how to optimize the layout of silicon on a chip, like. No. Exactly. Yeah. Indeed. 
All right. Well, that is our whirlwind tour of uh, hypervisor implementation. So hopefully that helps illuminate some of the, the questions that we had last time. It's still pretty deep topic. We could, like I said, we could go on for for many more episodes <laughs> trying to break all this stuff down. But hopefully, it gives it. It just gives a really. These two episodes have given a really good fundamental understanding of like, okay, what is a virtual machine? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is a hypervisor? Yes. Um, what is its purpose? Um, and you know, how is all this stuff segmented and partitioned and protected? And what does it mean to have hardware virtualization versus para virtualization? So, yes. this will really set us up well as we go into the next few episodes to talk about containers and how are those different. Yes, you know, I'm, what I'm most excited about is that I think that. After this series, there's going to be a bunch of talks that they do at reInvent that'll kind of open up for me and all of our listeners. Like, you know, hearing about this stuff you just said, there's absolutely talks at, at reInvent that go in detail over some of this stuff. And if you walk in with the knowledge of just from these four episodes, you'll you'll be ahead of the game, ahead of most of the people in the room, I, I would guess. Absolutely. I, you could have a drinking game at reInvent. Every time they say nitro, drink. <laughs> um, it's going to happen, right? So right, right. 2019, yep. You'll hear Nitro a lot. (laughs) Well, very cool. Thanks so much for going over that, Chris, and I'm looking forward to continuing next week. All right. Thanks, John. See you then. Bye. Nobody listens to podcast outros. Why are you still here? Oh, that's right. It's the outro song. Come talk to us at mobicast.fm or on Reddit at r slash mobicast. 